Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. We're going to change the format a little bit tonight. Um, I'm going to talk about some actors who've passed in the last few weeks, talk a little bit about film history, what I've been seeing, maybe some of the films that you've been watching, but we're going to have a fun time because this is classic movies. This week, one of the actors who passed was James Caan. I always thought he was one of the more unique actors that Hollywood has ever produced. Um, something about Hollywood has changed dramatically over the years, and I think it's partially due to the fact that the studios don't create movie stars anymore. Back in the day, the studios were like factories. They had actors under contract, and they trained them. They got them their early roles. They groomed them for stardom. And they created movie stars out of whole cloth. And MGM, the greatest studio in the world in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, used to boast that they had more stars than there were in heaven. And in fact, there's this great giant photograph that was taken of all the MGM stars under contract. I think it was back in the 50s. And it was an amazing group of actors from Clark Gable to Errol Flynn. Uh, I don't even think Errol Flynn was really an MGM actor, but he was in that picture. But just so many famous people at that time. And we don't do that anymore because the studios no longer have actors under contract. Where do they find actors? I mean, I mean, arguably one of the great movie stars today is The Rock. And The Rock started out as a wrestler. Uh, for many years, Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of the greatest stars in Hollywood. He was a bodybuilder. I mean, it's, it's interesting because some of the biggest names in our business didn't start out as actors. And I think that when you come across an actor like James Caan, you realize you've got something really golden. Uh, ben, do, do you know who James Caan is? Do you recognize the name? I heard the name and it didn't click to me at first. And then I saw a picture and I was like, oh, that's who that was. It, it, well, it, he'll, it, yeah, he'll forever be known as Sonny Corleone in the Godfather movie. Um, but his career is much more uh, varied than just the Godfather. And we'll talk about the Godfather in a minute. Um, I think I first remember seeing James Caan in a John Wayne Western um let's see it's um it's the kind of remake of rio bravo and the name will it will <laughs> the name escapes me at the moment um but he's he plays a character named cincinnati which was kind of a character similar to the ricky nelson character in rio bravo and there's just something fun about um james Kahn's performance um my friend Steve Mitchell, who I've had on the show several times, he has a, a kind of a phrase he refers to that of interesting actors. He calls them laughs. When they come on screen, they, they give you a reaction. And James Caan would definitely qualify as laughs. There's some actors who are very bland and don't have that quality. But James, James Caan kind of epitomized a cocky persona that worked so well for him in so many films. 
Um, then we talked about the Western. Um, he he's he's per, he's perfectly cocky in The Godfather. All of us have seen this movie countless times. I don't have to explain to you who Sonny is in The Godfather, but the the core of that character was a cocky Italian persona. And uh, I think that Khan from the get-go on screen just projects that so beautifully. And of course, The Godfather is so beautifully produced and I'm enjoying now, I don't know if any of you are watching this on the Paramount Plus channel, they have a, a mini series, a limited series about the making of The Godfather, which is just a lot of fun. And all these shows that, um, you know, they're doing now about the making of shows, I think is really, is really fun. It's, it's, just, it's just a way of going into Hollywood history with scripted narrative, which is just so much fun. Um, I, I, I enjoy this very much. I also have been working on some of my own projects along the same lines. The idea of taking movies of the past and recreating their film history is something relatively new. And I know we've seen kind of versions of Citizen Kane as the backdrop of the Gary Oldman film recently. Um, they have one they're developing on the making of Chinatown. Um, that's just, you know, just really fun stuff for us at a time when there aren't a lot of fun shows being made. Um, I say fun when I say entertaining. There's just too much dark material out there. The name of the John Wayne movie, by the way, is called El Dorado. And it was released in um, 1966. And it was one of his first performances. Um, he, he was in television too. In fact, uh, he's in an episode of Combat, one of my favorite shows of the 1960s with, Rick, with Vic Morrow and Rick Jason. He plays a German in a really cool episode about Saunders squad, the Vic Morrow character, and they're racing to get some fo uh, photography from a down P-38 Lightning. And James Kahn is leading the German squad and Vic Morrow is leading the American squad. And that was just another early opportunity to see James Kahn. And then um, The Godfather comes along in 1972, but just about the same time, the year before, he was in a television movie called Brian's Song, where he played the Chicago Bears player, Brian Piccolo, and he played opposite an actor who was playing uh, Gail Sayers, and that actor was Billy D. Williams. And it was a very interesting movie and got a lot of attention, a lot of awards, and certainly put James Caan on the map the year before Godfather came out. So he was a natural choice to play Sonny. Ben, you've seen The Godfather several times, haven't you? I've seen it twice and I need to watch it again because it's been several years. There isn't a bad performance in that movie. I, I, I want to make that abundantly clear. I haven't seen part three. I've seen one and two. Uh, I don't think there's a bad performance in either one for, if my memory recalls correctly, like there isn't a bad actor. And if you look at some of the people that have paid tribute to James Conn in the last week, it's a who's who, right? Al Pacino. Oh, sure. You know, oh, sure, sure. There was just the Rob the, Reiner, think, you know. Well, oh, absolutely. The the key to The Godfather, of course, as is the key to most movies, is the casting. I mean, when you have actors like Marlon Brando, when you have actors like Al Pacino and James Caan, 
and Robert Duvall and the character actors who surrounded them, Richard Castellanos as Clemenza, Abe Vigoda as, as Tessio, uh, certainly Talia Shire was in it, Diane Keaton. And for it's the Godfather amazing. specifically, for the Godfather specifically, I want to point out it didn't hurt that they had the endorsement of the mob to make that movie. It, <laughs> it didn't hurt. That's all I'm saying. Well, if they didn't have the endorsement, there would have been big trouble. Um, it's funny because I'm watching this series on Paramount Plus, the, the offer, and they talk a little bit about that, how the mob fit. There's a scene in uh, early in, this, in, in the first episode where... Um, Mario Puzo, the author of the book, is being escorted into Chazen's restaurant by um, Al Ruddy, the producer, played by the wonderful actor Miles Teller. Most of you remember Miles Teller as the drummer in that crazy movie Whiplash a couple years ago. Miles has become a major actor in Hollywood, and he plays Al Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather. So he's escorting Mario Puzo into this uh, you know, famous restaurant, Chazen's, and Sinatra's sitting there. And it was not a good meeting. Uh, Sinatra was furious about the book. He did not like the way Italians were being portrayed. And he gives the sense there's ominous rumblings amongst the, the you know, certain community that they're not gonna like this movie getting it made. So I know it'll play out in the series and I'll be interested to see how they do it. But getting back to Khan, Khan, had this kind of energy, I, I referred to it as cockiness, but he had kind of a bravado, a macho-ness that really played well and a confidence on screen that was beautifully, beautifully portrayed. And I, I, the, one of the films that followed The Godfather was a movie called The Gambler, uh, which is based on a famous story. Um, the Gambler, is an entirely different type of movie than The Godfather. Um, basically, he plays a character and his name is Axel Free. He teaches literacy, uh, excuse me, he teaches literature in a San Francisco uh, university. So he's a university professor who unfortunately has a gambling addiction, addiction. Now I know a lot of people saw the remake, uh, Mark Wahlberg played the same character in a recent remake of The Gambler, but the original Gambler, which was released the um, two years after The Godfather, uh, is a, another wonderful James Caan performance. This is a guy who just is obsessed with betting on literally everything. And uh, it's, it's kind of a heart-wrenching story at times because as soon as he wins a bet, he then loses another bet. And the things that are going on and affect his relationships with people, with his mother, with his girlfriend, uh, also boasts a really interesting cast. Um, Lauren Hutton, who was a very hot actress at that time, plays his girlfriend who's just stunned by some of his uh, things he does. And I remember... A friend of mine, my roommate at the time, we he was also into gambling, and we went to see the movie together. And he he just was enthralled by this Axel character. But another great performance by Khan. He was also in a movie called Thief, and uh, I, I can't even name a lot of the roles he's portrayed over the years. He has a small part in uh, Richard Attenborough's adaptation of the Cornelius Ryan novel, A Bridge Too Far which was the story of Operation Market Garden and the evasion of, the, of Holland by American and British paratroopers. 
And uh, he has a small part as a, as a sergeant who's trying to find medical attention for the lieutenant who commanded his unit. And uh, it's a terrific performance. Uh, again, a moment where he just takes everything uh, and does everything to get this uh, man looked at by, an, uh, by a medical officer who just wasn't want to do it. And he actually takes out his sidearm and points it at this doctor and demands that he look at his officer. And to the, uh, to the actor's astonishment, turns out that the officer is still alive and he does surgery and saves his life. It's a great James Caan performance. And um, I, I really miss him. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of actors like James Caan. I felt the same way a few years ago when Brian Dennehy passed away and uh, Dennis Farina. These are actors who kind of are a little bit of a throwback to kind of classic Hollywood when character actors were in every frame, where leading actors were movie stars. And Khan was just, uh, just a wonderful presence and we'll miss, miss him and his grit. Uh, his uh, son, Scott Khan, who has been on the Hawaii Five-O series, also become a good actor. You might recognize him. He's one of the Ocean's Eleven in the George Clooney remake. Uh, and I, I know he's getting some attention uh, on new projects. Um, another person who passed away in the last week uh, was Monty Norman, the British composer. Now, for those of you who don't know the name, Monty Norman uh, is credited from the very first James Bond movie creating the theme, the famous dun da da dun 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 da da dun dun da 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 Please excuse my voice, sorry about that. But Monty Norman um, passed away recently, I believe he was 92, uh, long history. He assembled a lot of the great music, uh, most of the great music that's featured in Dr. No. Now, if you don't know the first James Bond movie, the first James Bond movie was released in 1962 in England arrived early in 63 in the States and is mostly takes place in uh, Jamaica. And Monty did a lot of research. He went around and gathered uh, original music uh, from locals and some really standout uh, titles like Jump Up and Underneath the Mongo Tree really flavored that movie. Now there's a little bit of controversy about the James Bond theme. In 1977, when I started research on my first James Bond book, it's called The James Bond Films of Behind the Scenes History, uh, I interviewed John Barry. Now, John Barry uh, was a major musician in, in, in London at that time. Um, he gets credit for, I think, recording the theme. But in talking to John, I got the impression that Monty's theme was incomplete when it was turned into producers, Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. And uh, Barry talks about the guitar, um, you know, the guitar riff that he does, that, that kind of dun 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 That was pure Barry. And he talks about that at length, about the fact that that ended up in the theme. So I think the James Bond theme was really more of a collaboration between Monty Norman and John Barry, although John didn't get credit for it. Uh, and of course, the James Bond theme has become one of the great themes in film history. And they're, they're always playing it in different parts of the Bond movie, including the recent Daniel Craig's.
So Monty was definitely a, a, a kind of part of the creative team. And I can't say enough about the music he brought to that, that um, uh, movie, Dr. No, which stunningly was produced for $1 million, which of course pays for coffee on some of the Marvel movies these days, has so much production value and so much entertainment value in it. It's not surprising that it jump-started the whole James Bond series. And Ben, it would be a lot of fun for you to watch that Dr. No movie because I think you'll really get excited about it. I don't think you've seen the first Bond movie, have you? Fun fact, we have worked together for almost a year now and I've never seen a James Bond movie. <laughs> how, how have I worked with you for almost a year and now, you know what? Before I come to LA next year, I have to watch a bunch of the Bond movies. I I think I think it, it, it's not like getting your teeth pulled. Let me let me say that up front. Um, the very first few James Bond movies are pure joy, and uh, you got to put yourself in the context of 1962. I mean, this is this is kind of still a little bit of 1950s filmmaking but with directors like Terrence Young and editors like Peter Hunt and of course, Sean Connery starring as James Bond, you're not in too bad company. So I think Dr. No is fun. And I'm always humming themes from that first Bond movie. I mentioned the underneath the Mongo tree. It's just a really wonderful, you know, kind of Caribbean flavor tune that actually features the only moment in, um, in the series where James, uh, where Sean Connery sings. He's, He's lying on the beach on Crab Key and he wakes up and he hears a beautiful female voice and he walks out to the beach and he's peering from behind some fronds and he sees Ursula Andres coming out of the water in this white bikini, literally like Venus coming from the water in, in a classical Greek uh, setting. And she's singing underneath the mango tree. So Connery as Bond hears it and he starts singing underneath the mango tree too. So it's really a bit of trivia there that only the only time in the series James Bond sings. Of course, we don't expect him to sing much because it's not a musical. So you have a lot to a lot of fun look I, to look forward to. Again, I've now. never seen a Bond movie. I do want to go back to something we were talking about earlier with the making of series. Because I agree with you. I think those are really fun a lot of the time. One thing I still want, and I'm still hoping it happens, and I'm hoping Fred Savage does it, because if he doesn't, he's missing money. The making of The Wonder Years needs to happen, like, tomorrow. I don't care who does it. I think Disney owns the rights to it now. Can this happen? Can we just get a making of The Wonder Years? Because that is, in my mind, still the best television show that's just pure fun that we've had in a long time. Well, if I, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there a new version of the wonder years on the air right now? Uh, it's on Disney plus and yeah, it's kind of a black version, right? Yeah. And, and I've heard it's good. I haven't heard a whole lot of bad things about it, but I've heard what the main criticism I've heard of it is okay. This is cool. Like it works, but it's not, it doesn't have the same, charm that the original did because it is not the original it's kind of got sequelitis if that makes any sense at all yeah no i hear you it's unfortunate that um some of some of these shows just um 
Well, I, I don't, I have, you haven't seen a James Bond movie. I've never seen The Wonder Years. It is, and keep in mind, I I defend this show a lot because it does have holes like like you wouldn't believe. I'm sure movies you enjoy have plot holes too where you're just kind of like, okay, that doesn't make a whole ton of sense, but I'll go with it. But it is, and I like Fred Savage a lot and I think he's a good actor, but I think it's Fred Savage's best performance, which is hilarious because he was a kid. <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. <clears throat> but it's on Hulu. You should watch the original Wonder Years. It is... It is the best thing ABC ever did, bar zero. I mean, like, they don't make TV like that anymore, and I wish they would, and I'm a sucker for 80s television. That's just me. Uh, but I, I do think that a making of The Wonder Years would be interesting because it was such a weird period in time that they were covering there. Because keep in mind, The Wonder Years is set right around the time of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And you could do a lot with that with the making of. I mean, I mean, it wasn't filmed then, but you could do a lot with it because it was so well written and so well done that I don't know. I hope it happens, even if it's just a documentary. I, I I'd watch it. I'd pay seven bucks to watch it. I mean, that's me though. Well, another person who passed away, and another kind of character actor extreme in the last two weeks who I noticed I don't know if anybody of you heard this was an actor who's pretty much unknown to a lot of contemporary people but his name is LQ Jones and LQ Jones popped up in a lot of westerns starting in the 1950s and uh, I, I'm just looking at his filmography now he goes all the way back he's got so many credits it's crazy he actually made his debut in a movie I had seen called Battle Cry. Battle Cry was a big 1955 war picture based on the Leon Uris novel that was Warner Brothers' big film for 1955. And um, LQ played a character named LQ Jones. It's one of, I think it's probably one of the first times in film history where an actor made his debut using his real name which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but L.Q. Jones also got into filmmaking later on in his career. And, uh, and by the way, the L.Q. Jones character is a little bit about a, like an army clown. He plays a U.S. Marine who's always doing all sorts of uh, fun stuff in this great movie, which starred Tab Hunter, um, Perry Lopez, Raymond Massey, and of course, Van Heflin played the lead character, High Pockets. Such an interesting movie from 1955. But that was L.Q. Jones. But L.Q. Jones later put together the film that starred Don Johnson called A Boy and His Dog, which uh, is uh, one of the great science fiction films from the 1970s. Uh, but if you look at L.Q. Jones' filmography, he was in everything. He was in adventure films, he was in westerns, he was in TV series. Uh, just looking in 1959 alone, he was in 19, he was in Johnny Ringo. He was in uh, the Buick Electro's Playhouse. He was in the feature 10 Who Dared, he was in The Rebel. I mean, he was the perfect Western, Western actor to fill out performances. So I, I think that's another 
example of an actor that they're tough to lose those character actresses. We don't, we don't have it. I don't want to say we don't have as many character actors today, but maybe what I'm trying to say is we don't have as many perhaps memorable as memorable character actors from that period. Now, in this same grouping of all these wonderful people who have passed in the last two weeks, we also lost Larry Storch. And Larry Storch is less known from his movie career, but he was one of the stalwarts on a TV series from the 60s I adored called F Troop. He played Corporal Agarn to uh, Forrest Tucker's Sergeant O'Rourke and Ken Berry's uh, Lieutenant Parmenter. Um, so Larry Storch was part of the comical side of it. This is a show before your time, uh, Ben. It was called F Troop, and it was about the most dysfunctional army post in the history of the American West and their relationship with the Hakawi tribe led by Frank Dakova's, I think his name was, was it Wild Eagle? It's a, it's a funny show, and, and Larry Storch was, was just a, a great comic presence in that show. So J James Kahn, Monty Norman, L.Q. Jones, Larry Storch, um, actors and kind of iconic people from the film business. Some, some of my non-entertainment friends often wonder why I pay so much attention to celebrity deaths. I mean, people die every day. Is it that big a deal when a celebrity passes? And I look at them square in the face and I say, yeah, it is a big deal. These people are part of our own history. I mean, yes, they're not family members, they're not close friends, but every time we rewatch them in a film or television show, it's almost like a friend's come into our room to entertain us. And when that friend is no longer with us, that is a form of a loss. And I feel, you know, uh, I just feel so close to these people. Uh, like most of you know, I'm, I'm a big film buff. I, I watch films constantly. I listen to them on cassettes, I watch them on DVD, I stream them. I do go to the movies occasionally, although not as much as I used to. Uh, movies in many ways are friends of mine and the actors in them are friends of mine because they entertain me in some ways more than anybody else entertains me. And I think that when a James Caan or a, uh, an L.Q. Jones or a Larry Storch or a Monty Norman, you know, they go, uh, it's, it is a loss. How do you feel about celebrity deaths, Ben? I agree with you because so many of them, you know, to use kind of a television analogy, and it's an analogy uh, Charlie Gibson made on his final broadcast on ABC World News many, many years ago. And if any of you get that reference, you are my new best friend. Um, <laughs> uh, you're, you invite them into your living room. You invite them into your bedroom. You invite them into wherever you watch TV or movies. And they become a part of your life in a way. You know, if you watch a TV show enough times, these characters start to feel like, hey, these are my friends. And when Chadwick Boseman passed away a couple of years ago, that one hit me because it's like this guy just finally kind of hit his stride in Hollywood and finally got the recognition he deserved for being as good as he was. And then he's gone at, at the snap of a finger. I mean. Yeah. And I feel the same way about sports figures, you know, like when Kobe Bryant passed away, it just didn't seem right. It just didn't seem right. I mean, Kobe, it Bryant, didn't seem real. 
It didn't seem real. In fact, when we first heard it, it just didn't seem real. Exactly. And, you know, um, I, I, these are iconic people who have given us such pleasure over the years with their, the way they play or where they, where they perform. I remember when Steve McQueen passed away in 1980. I remember just, just not feeling well all day because he was so much a part of my childhood. I mean, I saw every Steve McQueen movie multiple times. And when I was uh, 10, 11 years old, I, I met him in traffic. He asked me for directions. I mean, how can you not forget a moment like that? Steve McQueen in a Ferrari. I've told that story a million times. Uh, you know, it's my the are... biggest celebrity death that hit me. And it's a sports star. Uh, Jose Fernandez, the pitcher for the Marlins. The oh, boating, sure. the boating accident. I could tell you exactly where I was when I heard about that. Same with Kobe Bryant. It, that was one of those you don't forget where you were if you heard about it in the moment. I was up early that morning watching Sports Center as I did a lot back then, and they went to commercial, and you know how ESPN's commercials are—they're usually like what two minutes. They're in commercial for forty-five seconds, and they come back. And I'm like, oh, no, something happened. Because when they come back that quick, you know it's something bad. You know, when Robin Williams passed away, uh, oh, it was like, you know. And I think another thing is, is that we're so used to these people coming into our living room or being on a talk show or just being part of the fabric of our life. I think these are difficult times for many of us. The, the world just doesn't seem to be itself on so many levels. So I think we're retreating more and more into distraction, whether it's sports or movies or television shows or gaming, wrestling. We just want to get away from the news every day because it's just unrelentingly bad. So these celebrities, these actors, sports figures, if they can provide us with some joy and distraction, it's just a great bonus. And over the years, Perhaps I've probably spent too much time watching movies until sometimes the movies seem more real than real. I just have grown to adore these actors. My, my classic film review last weekend, I put up a classic film review of Airport, the 1970 Airport with Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin. And I just love that movie. That movie is another one you should put on your list, Ben, because it's it's big old fashioned Hollywood filmmaking at a time when big old fashioned Hollywood move, movie making was kind of disappearing. This is 1970 and the 70s were about Mavericks doing things a lot differently than they did in the old days. And uh, Airport is based on a, a great novel by Arthur Haley. And it's basically the story of an airport manager played by Burt Lancaster who's dealing with a stuck airliner. Uh, on his runway while another airliner uh, discovers that they have a bomber on board and it's just um, just an amazing group of actors Dean Martin of all people who you usually associate with him holding a glass in his hand hosting a, a roast or a variety show plays a very credible pilot and he's the co-pilot to uh, Barry Nelson uh, and Burt Lancaster's girlfriend is Gene Seberg George Kennedy plays the crew chief who helps on stick the airliner. There's so many people in this movie. Uh, the very luscious uh, Jacqueline Bizet is Dean Martin's girlfriend, uh, although he's also married to, uh, to someone. So it's a little controversial. 
But I love that movie. I love the filmmaking. And sadly, most of those actors are gone. Helen Hayes has a wonderful part as a stowaway on the same airliner that has the bomber. And they just don't make movies like that much anymore. Uh, that, was the, that was the start of the era of the all-star casts uh, in a lot of movies, in disaster movies. And uh, some of them were pretty bad, although one of the follow-up movies to uh, Airport was uh, The Towering Inferno, which is 1974, I believe. And that featured Steve McQueen. And of course, obviously, I saw that with Paul Newman and William Holden. Another great epic movie. Uh, these actors are just very much a part of our lives. And when we talk about classic movies, we're really talking about these wonderful performances that remain with us. And my, my wife says, I drive her a little crazy sometimes, how many times I'll watch a movie over and over again. And she just finds it con confounding. But I say that when you walk into an art gallery and you walk up to the Mona Lisa or something from uh, Monet and you see a painting for the 90th time, uh, you don't really question it because it's just art. And I think movies are the art form of the 20th and 21st century. And I have no qualms seeing classic films over and over again, because even by watching a film for the 70th time, I still get the joy from it. And, you know, for as much as you're a movie buff, I'm a TV buff, right? I'm a nerd for 80s television. I love The Wonder Years. Again, I defend that show to my grave. And I'm sure you've got a movie like that, too, where you will defend it no matter what happens. Where you're well, just like, you know, yeah, there, the, the, uh, many of the films I love are guilty pleasure movies, just simply because not only do I enjoy them for what they are, but they kind of bring me back to a time when I was young. Um, I, it's, there are so many science fiction movies from the 1950s I saw in the theater at the stadium across from my apartment back in the day. And some of them are pretty bad, but they're kind of guilty pleasure bad. Uh, my friend Gail Hickman, who's a wonderful television and feature writer, uh, I, always, I always joke with him that um, we should remake Attack of the Puppet People, which was one of those uh, American international uh, movies that... Um, you know, about miniature people who are being captured by a mad toy maker. And I still love that movie. It's, it's really a silly little movie, but it's just the, the setup is really funny that this guy collects and, and miniaturizes people and keeps them in his little, his little um, area of his toy um, manufacturing facility. And they have, they're plotting their escape. I think John Agar, who was in so many John Ford movies, he plays one of the people who's captured that's called a guilty pleasure movie. And I talk about them on the show occasionally and we'll bring on some of the people who were in those movies. Well, Ben, you know, um, we, we, we're gonna miss James Kahn, we're gonna miss Larry Storch, we're gonna miss uh, Monty Norman and we're gonna miss LQ Jones. Um, I, I thought it would be a good night to do a fitting tribute to them because they are part of the fabric of our our wonderful film universe, film and television universe. And um, we'll just keep enjoying their performances. That's another thing about these actors is they never really die because we can put them on and we can listen to the music of a Monty Norman whenever we wish. And, and in a certain way, they're with us forever. And uh, that is one of the joys of entertainment. Well, tonight you've been listening to a different form of Saturday Night at the Movies. 
I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our, our producer, as always, is the very capable Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 network. And uh, next week, we're going to have a wonderful author on. Um, it's a, a new book that just came out. It's called The Making of the Best Years of Our Lives. And we're going to have the author, Allison McCor, on to talk about how she got into writing a whole book about the best picture of 1946. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's about three soldiers, two soldiers and a sailor who come, actually, excuse me, one soldier, one sailor, one airman who arrive home from World War II. And it's how they become uh, part of the civilian world again and how difficult that transition becomes. And uh, it's a wonderful movie directed by the great filmmaker, William Wyler. Uh, also known for films like The Little Foxes and Ben-Hur and Detective Story and Funny Girl. Uh, so that's going to be our guest with Allison next week. We're going to dive deep into the making of the best years of our lives. This is Steve Rubin. Thank you for joining us tonight and keep watching classic movies. <laughs>